Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide training, introductions, and funding for working artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. Despite having 200% more education, less than one-third of working artists fully support themselves with their art. The difference is proper business training, which the Clark Hewlings Fund solves with educational fellowships, digital education, and in-person learning. You can have an exponential impact on working artists and our economy with a monthly donation that funds CHF's educational programming and this show. Your investment does not buy an artist a fish, it buys the fishing rod. So give small at clarkhealingsfund.org impact. That's clarkhealingsfund.org impact. Now, our guest today is Marianne Weems. Marianne is the founder and owner of Weems Galleries and Framing, with two locations in Albuquerque, New Mexico, the first of which opened in 1981. The gallery's holdings represent a wide range of styles priced from $5 to $8,000, but emphasize affordable art. A dedicated supporter of the Albuquerque art scene, Mary Ann also ran a major art festival there for 32 years, which drew 50,000 customers in its final year, and she recently started painting again herself. Mary Ann, welcome to the show. Can you take a minute to tell us just a little bit more in your own words about yourself and your work? Hi, Daniel. Welcome me to the show. How about thank you for allowing me to be on this show? It's a privilege, and it's a pleasure. And what you said basically is correct. I started in 1981 with the gallery, but it actually began my art career with an, a degree in art in 1972 in the Albuquerque area. And that particular emphasis of me being an artist is what created the gallery with an emphasis on their care and how difficult it was for artists to get representation in galleries. So my whole idea was, I didn't care who you were. I cared what your art looked like. I went the opposite. I didn't look for names. I looked for the striving artist. And that's what started it all off, Daniel. Well, so that uh, answers the questions of why you founded Weems Galleries and Framing, what you were trying to achieve, which is kind of a pivot on the traditional gallery-artist relationship. So why the emphasis on affordable art? What are you trying to accomplish there? Well, in 1981, the economy was in a recession. And what I noticed at that particular time in our country, that average people were very afraid to walk into galleries. And Santa Fe took precedence over every area in New Mexico. And if you walked into Santa Fe and didn't have a particular look about you, then you were sort of pushed aside. And, of course, the price range was particularly high, even in 1981. So I kept thinking, why are the arts and crafts fairs so popular in Albuquerque, but the galleries are popular in Santa Fe? Well, I looked at the population base and looked and decided they were two different bases. Santa Fe was a marvelous market for bringing out-of-towners, New Yorkers, you know, uh, people from other states. But Albuquerque was New Mexico, and New Mexico has never been noted for its high impact of money. It didn't mean that the people didn't want to have art. They were afraid of art. They were afraid they couldn't afford art, and both of those were erroneous. So affordability became the key. The fairs allowed you to buy at all prices without spilling awkward about it. You didn't feel the intimidation 
of not having a lot of money going to the arts and crafts fair. Whereas you walk into a gallery in Santa Fe and you felt very uncomfortable. Probably the same in New York City or other major art cities around the country. So affordability, which was 1981, was not a mainstay in galleries. But if you've noticed, it has become more and more popular through the years. Let me ask you a question. This concept of affordable art, um, it, it strikes me as a, it could be a hotbed issue. You know, some people may say, well, you're, aren't you viewing art as a commodity? Well, and I agree it's a hotbed issue. Affordability has always been looked down, particularly among the people who do tend to purchase art. And, you know, the art in the earlier days was always for the wealthy. And by creating the idea of affordable art, what you're doing is taking artists who are willing to receive less for their artwork, which does not mean they are lesser artists, but you're giving them a chance. And they're willing to you know, have someone pay $100 for their pieces. I, I'll give you a point in fact. When I entered the New Mexico Arts and Crafts Fair in 1982, I did pen and ink and pencil drawings. The highest priced item in my booth was $100. This is 1981, so, you know, that's probably like 500 now or whatever. And I sold out, and I had a ball. And I made incredible friends, and I developed following. Okay, I was very affordable. I looked around at other artists at the fair who, in this particular setting, weren't doing as well as I was. And what they weren't doing was recognizing their audience. You have to play to your audience. Albuquerque was an area of not of high art interest and even high art intelligence, but not necessarily high art spending. So I recognized the audience and sold to them and started creating my own market through my own art. So, yes, it's hotbed. A lot of people don't like it at all. They don't like the idea because, you know, it makes it more general. It does make it a commodity. And, yes, art is a commodity. It is a stock. I've said this to many of my artists. It's a, it could be a blue-chip stock, but it's still like a stock, you know, and it needs to be sold unless you are lucky enough to have a patron who supports you, or like they did in the Renaissance time, have the Catholic Church support you. So you have to see your market. The better markets are, of course, higher markets are, of course, and the larger cities, more on the East Coast and the far West Coast, where there is more money to spend. So, you know what? I took away the idea of it being unfashionable. I made it very fashionable, in fact, to be smart about buying art. And it didn't mean that you were, uh, what I used to say as a joke, but it's true, we would sell to people who were intelligent enough to spend less on art if they liked it. Now, Daniel, that gives you pause, I know. Not at all. So um, it's kind of singing our song. You know, at the Clark Healings Fund, we give entrepreneurial education and business training to working artists. And of course, one of the hurdles we have to get over, but we get over it pretty quickly, is emphasizing that art is a product, 
that when you look at generation of products, you're looking at the operations side of a company. And if you really want to increase your annual revenue as a business, if you want to make more money uh, or you want to uh, do a better job marketing or selling, uh, those things all require looking at the artist's work as a business, not just a career as though you were a W-2 employee and you worked for somebody else. Uh, not that that would make it any more sort of meritorious. So, no, I'm, I'm on the same page with you. Uh, and in fact, I would say to be consistent, what you've done is impose utter consistency because you founded Weems partly to change the game a little bit in terms of accessibility of gallery representation to artists. But then to be consistent with that, you also have to right. make the art more accessible to people. You can't sort of live in an ivory tower and say no to the consumer uh, while living down on the ground and saying yes to more artists. So let me ask you this. Your gallery's been around for 36 years. What's the key to the longevity? Is it this? Is there some? Are there other elements? What drives um, the longevity? Uh, uh, trustworthiness. I have never, ever cheated a customer. And there is a tremendous amount of fraud in the art world. But when you live in a city the size of Albuquerque, word gets out fast. So I am very trustworthy. People could trust me. And persistence, sweat, hard work. Seven days a week when I first started. Twelve hours a day. You know, everybody thinks this is a glamorous job, but one of the difference, Daniel, and myself, as opposed to maybe other gallery owners, was I did not have the wealth going into it. What I noticed, most galleries were owned by people who were very rich to begin with or had rich partners or were set up by more wealthy supporters. I went in with $6,000 that I borrowed from my parents and paid them back, by the way, within two years. But it's a concept. You know, it's real. And I loved marketing. And I realized from the very beginning also that artists were very poor business people, which I don't mean to say that. That's a generalization. A lot of artists are probably very good. But uh, most that I ran up against certainly did not have any marketing ideas, business ideas. And so my idea was to teach them reach them and take them out of the ivory towers. Well, that makes sense to me. Uh, so let me ask you this. Still, it's not like we're saying that you decide to represent everyone or that you take, no. uh, even if the art is affordable, that you take, you know, every kind of piece or all pieces that are, you're offered. So how do you decide who to represent? How do you determine what uh, art will, in fact, sell? Really, two different questions rolled into one. It is, and it's a very difficult one because I learned also early that what I particularly liked wasn't necessarily the taste of everybody. I have a degree in art. I did pencil and pen and ink. I have a great discipline about art. I love Clark Ewing's work. I love realism. I love the the techniques, the ability to create that marvelous, incredible content. You know, I, I, it's very hard with the public, though, to say, I think that work is schlock, and yet, you know, watch one of my best customers purchase it. So I learned very early on 
that I couldn't use my taste alone. So it was a balance between, no, I w- it's very hard to get into the gallery, into my gallery now. It certainly wasn't then. But they still had to have a very good ability to, I, I didn't take canvases with paint splashed on them. I just couldn't go that far. Now, mine was, I liked discipline. I liked artists who were devoted. I liked a sense of balance in their work, the ability to draw. In fact, I found some of my best artists were actually architects who did the art on the side. So that was very appealing to me. And price was absolutely imperative. Giving them, you know what I used to tell the artist? You know, you can't always put the time, how much time you spend on the art. Would you be doing something else if you weren't doing the art? Would you like to be able to support yourself or at least pay for the materials? Then you are going to have to put it in a price range that somebody spontaneously can walk in and purchase because they find it beautiful. In their eyes, it's beautiful. So as far as picking the artist and choosing the artist, I went for the range of art as much as possible. So from realism to impressionist to, but not avant-garde. I wasn't a fan of avant-garde, even though it was hitting very hard in the in the more eastern coast. But um, I like discipline, and I like devotion, and I like personality. You know, actually, the personality of artists is always seen in their artwork. It's very fascinating. You can tell, I can tell when an artist is having a divorce or a bad day or a bad month because their work will come in, it will have altered. And that's what I love about art. So they had to have the same passion about their art that I had. Let me ask you, so we we talked a little bit about price again, and uh, I guess I have a couple of questions. One, we talked about price. We talked about, you used the phrase splashes of paint. I'm just curious now, this isn't really so much for our listeners, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you emphasize a particular type of art, such as realism uh, or representational art, over abstract impressionist or abstract expressionism? And also, on the area of price, how how does the gallery stay competitive with online art sales and direct sales by artists, given how fast that type of art selling is growing? Well, now you're into a whole different ballgame. Number one, I think it's they're idiots. Anyone who buys art off the Internet, if they are not aware of the artist itself, they have seen the art in person and know what that work looks like in general. Because I also have a frame shop. And I have seen multiple people come into the frame shop to frame uh, works that they've gotten on the Internet or, you know, whatever. And they go, God, this doesn't look like what I saw on the Internet. We're all very aware of how the Internet, although almost perfect, the coloration will alter. And so you receive something, you think it looks exactly you know, like what you were going to get, and it doesn't. The other thing that I do that creates a difference from Internet sales versus what we have a checkout program. So you literally walk into the gallery, you check out pieces, piece or pieces of artwork, you take it to your home or office or wherever it's been, 
and you have it for 48 hours. So you get to see that piece in your home prior to purchasing. And that's very important because in my estimation, you're going to keep that artwork for a very long time and you should at least see how it changes with night, morning, light in your home. And so that gives us an advantage over internet sales. Internet sales also are very, many of them are fraud. They're fraudulent because they say it's one thing and then they send you a different thing and they say it's a gigolet. I'm not real fan of chiglets except for if they're well done by well artists are very good artists like Clark Clark's are wonderful because I've seen those but I've seen multiple chiglets that have been sold to unwearing customers for several thousand dollars and they are no more than a a print that's been reproduced like a poster you know I think there's multiple things that uh, the online sales do not frighten me for my customer base. I think my customers are intelligent enough to know the difference. But I do know nationally it will impact a lot of people. Now, what is, uh, what is the future of the gallery business in your view? Is it evolving? And what's the best advice you have for fellow galleries? Oh, the gallery, it has changed rapidly since the 80s and 90s. My fear with the gallery, I mean, I don't fear the online. I don't fear the Internet that much. But I do fear the type of person who now does or does not walk into our gallery. What I have seen is a generation of younger people, Daniel, who appear not to have a great appreciation of the arts and who will fill their um, wall with an 80-inch TV instead of in the days prior to that being available, would fill it with a beautiful piece of art. And so galleries are going to have a tough time. I think that I've watched it in the last maybe four years, changing considerably, and many of them going out of business. So they're going to have to be very smart and give the best service possible. I mean, they're going to have to change what I think they got away with for a long time, which is being, you know, a snobbish appeal towards the general public and having a broader range of artwork. I mean, that's my opinion, but, you know, I'm watching my gallery struggle some. We are still in business every day because of the range of what I carry. Plus, I have a frame shop. So you can't do that as well on the Internet. You know, framing, I know they frame over the Internet, but I certainly wouldn't want to. So I look at what would I do? And I am an art buyer. I am an art lover. The show I, I told you about that I was in in 1982, where I sold out in my booth, well, what I was really doing was selling sort of I mean, I sold enough to sell out, but I was walking around buying other art. So I've always used me as the person who would be interested in purchasing and having for the long haul very good art. Of course, that makes it great fun for me. And my love is art, Daniel. I am a gallery owner who does not look at strictly as a business. It is my passion. 
I think people who don't have art in their homes are very foolish. And I think art is your history, you know, for your family, for yourself. I think you know, without art, there is no soul in our in our world. You know, you look at the museums, and I go, I look at our millenniums or whatever Gen Xers, and go, you know what? In years to come, our museums will be full of stupid TVs and computers and whatever that have no value whatsoever. And the only thing they're saying about our past was, in my opinion, we were uh, idiots. <laughs> I, God, boy, I get rough about that. The Internet does not bother me that much because of my type of business. So let me ask you, let me ask you about the representation model. And also I want to ask about ArtFest. So on the representational model, or the model of gallery representation, you know, some galleries take a really high percentage of artist revenue. And my question is, do you believe that this will shift? Will, will galleries have to adjust um, their role as sort of the middleman and, and how much compensation they take out of the artwork? And then secondly, um, to ask about ArtFest, you founded an international art fair in Albuquerque, which also ran for 32 years you right. know, alongside this gallery. Right. Um, were by founding that art fair, were you ahead of your time? I think so. I think that one of the reasons the gallery is still alive is because ArtFest gave me access to a more grand um, audience. That, in fact, well, ArtFest is a whole. It's a concept. First of all, let me answer the first question. I think galleries will even take more percentage, not less. You know why? Because there are a thousand artists for every one gallery. That's why. So I think that artists are going to have to get smart. And when a gallery says we're going to take 50% or 60%, they enjoy it, walk away, and be glad they're getting that percentage. I know galleries now that are taking 70% because the overhead is so high. So artists really have to understand what a gallery does for them. It allows them the opportunity for somebody else to do all the hard work, which is selling. That's hard work. I was always good at selling my work because I had such a passion. But most artists aren't that good at selling their own work. So, okay, that I think that answers the first part of that question. Is that You asked me about representation. I, from what I hear in New York City, they'll take up to 70-80%. I may be wrong, it may be erroneous, but that's certainly what I've heard. Well, you know, uh, we spend a couple of thousand dollars on lunch here, so, uh, you know, <laughs> there's a lot left over after that Well, in New you York, know but... <laughs> what, Daniel, it's a whole different composition. We have on an average of 10 artists a week approaching the gallery for representation. We can't represent all of them. So, actually, the artists right at the moment are not in the driver's seat. The galleries are. Uh, you know, this is a, a point I want to plug in one. Uh, you know, if, this, if we were talking about real estate, home buyers right. and home sellers, we would talk in terms of a buyer's or a seller's market. Right. right. And if, if the gallerist is the homeowner, it's an owner's market. Um, we've got an, an incredible um, 
you know, amount of sellers in the field looking to, to partner. And so um, I guess I would also ask then, um, does that mean that many working artists need to think about alternative ways of selling their work precisely through direct sales to the community, et cetera, precisely because in a market like this where the gallerists hold all the cards, you will give away a huge percentage of your income, even if you get accepted. Right. But if you're banking only on that, you'll have all your eggs in one basket. You don't have your, your income streams diversified. You have, you're, you're basically just, it's like you're working a W-2, 9-to-5 job for an employer. And I agree. It is very hard for artists. And so I've even told my artists, first of all, get out of the state that you are living in, which means you have to travel. You have to get into other markets. You know, I mean, that's advice that I give them. One of the reasons is New Mexico is sort of a poor market. I mean, it's a great art market. There's arts like you wouldn't believe. We have more artists per capita in New Mexico than any state in the United States. Now, can you imagine the competition there? And you have the Native American. And you have the Hispanic, and then you have the Anglo, regular people. You know, whatever you want to cause it, not call it. And I don't want to be, you know, deris, you know, divisive in this. But you know, you are all competing with each other. And so, for New Mexico artists, I highly suggest that they get look around at our economics going on throughout the country. Right now, you have Texas in good shape. You have Montana in good shape. You have Colorado in much better shape. You have Arizona as a good... Get your work out to the other galleries or do it and do the arts and crafts fairs. They're all over the country. Get you out personally. If you're young and you're capable of handling the the road trips, the spending at nights in, you know, terrible hotels or whatever get out there and be seen. And so there yes, I, I and I'm very fair that way with my artists. I do not have them exclusively. You know, I do not hold them into a contract I do within the town, but not within the state, nor other states. You know, I go, go, go. Well, but remember, Daniel, I'm an artist. I was an artist. They get paid first. When we get the money in, they're paid. Now, I am a, that's one of the reasons probably why a lot of artists went in the gallery. We have a very good reputation. And, and artists, I also say beware when you go out of state. You know, be very aware. Be sure that that gallery has an extremely good reputation that, you know, the work isn't going to go in a closet or you're not going to get paid. You know, I hear horror stories from a lot of artists who do show outside their state and when they go their art's not up or they have sold and they've never been paid because they haven't stayed on top of it. So being an artist is a you know a complete job. It's very it's not like how people picture it. It's hard. You know, and if you're going into it thinking that you can just sit back, paint your paintings, throw them out there and people are going to run to buy them then you are being naive in this particular market. You know, that's rough, but I am rough with artists. I mean, I'm not rough. I'm kind. I'm sweet. I feel horrible when I can't take them. You know, I understand what that feels like. 
So I empathize with all of them, but I'm also very realistic about what the market is like out there. Well, I think candor is probably always appreciated. No one wants to be patronized. And you know, I, my experience with the, the Business Accelerator Fellows is that um, they can take it. Uh, they just want to know what's what, you know, so, but they can take it. Well, let me ask you uh, a pivot question, uh, and we'll finish up with a section, and then I, I want to dig into working with artists a little deeper. Um, so, Okay, and also Artfest was imperative to making the gallery um, well-known. I will tell you more about that when we get the opportunity. Well, so that's where I was going to go with sort of my last oh. question on this is actually um, – why I was going to frame it as why did you stop doing it? Was it initially to get the gallery launched and sort of companion piece and then it was no longer needed? Or is there another reason you because you're not doing Art Fest anymore, right? Daniel, it was strictly my health. I had two heart attacks. <laughs> and Art Fest was a year round expo. You know, it was an incredible show. And it's high. We had artists from all over the country as well as scattered throughout the world. It was exciting. It was wonderful for the gallery because it, it gave it name identification. It was called Weems Art Fest. You know, I'm no dummy <laughs> because I realized I wasn't going to make money off the artist as they sold at Art Fest. I was going to indirectly make money in the long term by popularizing those artists. And by all the, we were very philanthropic. We always connected with a um, nonprofit group, whether it be a hospital or a child. You know, children are great. Animals are great. We included the public schools. I developed something called Children's Art Smart, which now has been copied, but it wasn't then. I mean, it's uh, all all over the place. But we're children, twelve and under. We're always free. And we would bring in the public school kids. We would have thousands of them. And we created an area where only children got to shop and no parents got to even go in. Because the artists and their... One thing about artists, God, they are great at donating. So they would take work that was in their in their normal booth and they would price it. Nothing could be over $10. And there was work in there for $300, $400. Uh, but the kids didn't know it. You know, the parents would know it, but the kids did not. And they could shop in there. And we had elves type of people who helped the children. They were very safe. And they would be, you know, they could go in with $10 and buy five items. Or they could go in. Well, this is how it grew. Art Smart grew. Where children started taking in credit cards. <laughs> From year to year. They learned. And a woman, my God, last week told me that her son is now in the service in London. And she always, it's so fun to hear these stories. And she always took him to Children's Art Smart at Art Fest. And he still talks about it to this day. So the idea of Children's Art Smart was tenfold. To, you know, children always come with parents. So parents then, and then the children could go in and meet the artists, find out how they did it, and the artists would sign the works or whatever. And uh, so these parents became in buying more art from that. It was it was just worked. It was a mar marvelous way. We have 
children in our gallery. Children have always been welcome in our gallery. That's another change. And I'm very casual in my gallery. The minute that gallery opened, I wore shorts and T-shirts and sandals. You could come in from working in your yard and never feel intimidated. And that was the entire environment of that gallery. Children were welcome. Animal pets were. We have more dogs that come in who pull their customers, our customers, into our store now because we always had dog treats. I'm telling you, it was a whole different ball game. Art Fest. I mean, it created. Well, it it it's hard to tell you what it created in the city, but it helped get named Albuquerque be named in. Oh, a couple of magazines is one of the top art destinations, and they mentioned ArtFest. And that was probably the most flattering thing I've ever had, you know, ever. And when I see kids now who are not kids, young people come into my gallery at this point and still talk about children's art smart and talk about coming into the gallery as children, and now they're shopping as adults. We've had three and four generations of that occur. So it was just a combination, Daniel. I know I'm speaking too much, but it's hard to describe all of it that happened. You know, with a little imagination, a lot of marketing, and some business sense. Well, so in the next segment of our show, we're going to dive into an area that I know a lot of our listeners who are working artists are going to want to know a lot about, which is, you know, how exactly this works, uh, getting representation and working with uh, a gallery. So we'll do that after our short station identification. If you've been finding value in what you're hearing, a gift of $15 per month lets you sponsor this show's ongoing broadcast. A portion of our funding also goes to deliver direct education to artists who've demonstrated a clear, achievable plan for transforming their businesses into self-sustaining and thriving ones that fill the world with art. Share this commitment with us now at clarkhealingsfund.org impact. That's clarkhealingsfund.org impact. We'd certainly appreciate it. Now, Marianne, does the gallery sign actual contracts with artists? And have you, in fact, seen galleries who work off contract? We do sign contracts, but they didn't start. Uh, it took me 15 years of the gallery to finally have a contract. Uh, with them. <laughs> so it wasn't, you know, I had no business plan. You know, I was, it was a handshake. It was an agreement with my artist. But finally, everybody said it's time to have a contract. And the contract, though, is not complicated. It's not, it's fairly simple and direct. You know, a percentage goes to the gallery, percentage we are, we have to pay the artist, of which, of course, I told you we pay first. It has to do with whether we can ever do anything as far as negotiating the price, the artist says yes, no, you know, call the artist, I give you permission to go 20% off. It does ask, because we have two galleries in Albuquerque, one in Old Town and one in the Heights, not to show within this area. And yet, I've seen myself a million times go, sure, go do it, you know, to try to help them. The contract is not 10 pages long. You know, it's a very simple, but most artists will probably face far more, uh, something that they should take on read, maybe have an attorney read, because there are galleries that will not allow you 
not only not to show in the state that you're located, but in shows, in, you know, multiple. I mean, they can really restrict you. And the bigger the gallery, even though we are the biggest right now, but the bigger the gallery, the more legal information they throw at you, the artist. But I am a champion for the artist. I always have been and always will be. Rough. Well, now, I've heard of galleries, one, doing what you're saying, which is provide some really draconian contracts with uh, some real restrictions that a lot of other artists wouldn't necessarily, like a visual artist, wouldn't take on. So if if right. I write a story and I submit it to a magazine and it says it wants lifetime rights, exclusive publication, uh-huh. it better be paying me a lot of money. If it wants first publication rights, okay, that's normal. And then the, it reverts back to me and I'm allowed to do some independent marketing and so on. So my question with that as preface is, uh, and the other thing I've seen is galleries that refuse to work on contract, which is another interesting and also potentially draconian way to do it. So have you seen with those two extremes, draconian contracts and galleries that refuse to work on contract, um, have you seen anything that artists should be watching out for, worry about, or should be a red flag that you can call out? I think I'd walk away. I mean, that situation, as an artist, I don't think any artist should be so desperate to agree to those terms. They could own them for life. They could own, own all the reproductions. They could own their cards. They could own, you know, they they may say that you have to follow this type of art, you know, which allows no experimentation. I think I'd walk away. As hard as that is to say for artists, but I think that they have to have a fair degree of, well, it's an agreement between the artist owner and yourself as an artist. You better like them. You better agree with what they are asking of you, and I just would walk away. No matter what, I don't think in the long run that would be good. Because they could own publishing rights. They could put it in there that you didn't even pay attention to. So they do a print, and they own the print, and you never get a percentage of that. There are little tiny things in small print. And artists sometimes can be so desperate to get into a gallery uh, what I've watched is some of the more notable galleries that are no longer exist in existence, you know, m- do this type of contract with the artist, and the artist is miserable and has no right to their own work. After, I mean, I would just walk. Well, so that that has a couple of assumptions in it. I want to ask you about. So, you know, we hear feedback, of course, from artists of in course. our accelerator program, and. And one of the things we'll hear is um, my gallery doesn't want me to do any kind of independent marketing, independent events without permission. I can't have a collaborative open studio event or anything else with any other artists. I can't start a Facebook page. I cannot sell reproductions of my art uh, or license somebody to have it as a book. Everything is locked down by this contract with the gallery. So that's one is the artist basically saying, you know, I'm a low-level employee and the gallery's the boss. The other is, uh, and we're not trying to knock gallerists, you're a gallerist, you have a gallery, but this is something we do see out there. And we have people saying, look, um, the galleries tell me take it or leave it. I'm afraid that if I don't take it, 
Uh, I'll never get gallery representation. Word will spread and I'll just be on a hunt all my life and have to go it all alone. So that's why I signed such a contract. So is that true? No. If, a, if an artist refuses such a contract or goes into negotiation, is he black marking himself or no. herself with, uh, with galleries in general? Is this going to skew no. that person's career? <laughs> I keep saying no. No. Galleries are in competition with each other. One artist, you know, going into one gallery, do you think the galleries are going to all talk together? I tried, I was a president of the Gallery Association to many, many years ago to get the galleries to work together to do promotion, et cetera, throughout the country. And all I saw was each gallery for itself. And I think that that pretty much still is today. So one gallery trying to pull that over the wool of an artist, I think is the artist should walk. And he will not, he or she will not be blackballed by other galleries. So you're, you're opening a, a little bit of a curtain there because what you're saying, uh, is that I, I think a lot of artists aren't hearing that, uh, the first time they encounter this, that, hey, you know, you have a little more power than you think. Absolutely. Uh, these galleries, in some case, it's not just you're lucky to get them. That mentality is what's creating the problem. It's that they're also lucky to get you if you're going to be a great artist oh. for them, sell a lot for them, produce great work. You're going to generate an incredible amount of revenue for that gallery. So it is all the, the eggs or all the power is not on one side of that relationship at all. And I totally agree with you. If an artist is exceptionally good, a gallery will be extremely excited to take them in especially if the artist will listen to the gallery owner and do everything. One of the things I do, of course, is promotion and give them shows, give them, you know, whatever. I think the idea that any gallery has to, or any artist has to accept that kind of statement from a gallery, you are not to do this, you are not to do that, is I would walk and find a gallery that's more to your liking because the galleries really do not talk to each other. They don't, in my, and certainly in this area. They are very competitive, and, and one gallery might not be appropriate for an artist, whereas another gallery would be perfect for that artist. So, you know, I, artists are, without artists, there aren't galleries. What are they going to sell? So they have to have the artist. You know, the galleries are almost a secondary thing to the artists themselves. Well, and you talk about, see, my artists all have their own uh, sites and stuff, but they, many of them are very good and they're very honest and they send them to the gallery or our gallery name and their information is on the site. You know, so, but they have their own sites. I want them to. We have a site. We have all the listings of our artists and craftsmen. And if people hit our site, fine. If they hit somebody else's site, most of our artists, because I treat them well, will say, Marianne, okay, I got this. Here, here's the, our percentages are lower too. If somebody makes a sale of their own, you know, on their own, and, but they feel that the customer initially got the information from our website or our gallery, then they will bring in a 30% commission. You know, and those are the ones the galleries go, thank you. I know a lot of artists maybe don't do that, but I'm very appreciative of those who do. And artists should have some loyalty 
to the galleries they are in. They have no idea how hard it is. Many of the galleries, many, I'm not saying all, work to sell their, their artwork. So, I mean, we go out to people's homes. We'll drag the art everywhere, you know, to try to create the sell form. They don't have to do it. We do it. You know, we do the publicity. Well, let me let me uh, let me say that there's a couple of contexts in which I've seen uh, a little more balance in this issue of selling. So one is in literary sales. The truth is, if you get a book deal and Harper Collins takes on your book, uh, and you're a first time publisher, right. they're going to do almost nothing. Sure, they're going to say that they put they put you in the catalog, they put it in the brochure, they're going to do some marketing. But the truth is, if you just let them do that and leave it at that, you're never going to sell enough books that they bring you back for book number two. Uh, and so no, what are. happens is the, the author has to go on the road, do signings, do marketing, get a Facebook page, yeah. uh, do ads, do everything he can to market the heck out of that first book. Uh, and so in that sense, right. there's a collaborative relationship. The same way is true, you know, I, I, uh, I have an affiliate sales relationship in which it's legal insurance, and you. I, I don't actually sell much of it. I, I just did it because um, I get a deal on the legal insurance. But, <laughs> but the deal right, is that if if somebody, the rules are of the organization. If somebody talks to me and says I am interested in legal insurance, let's talk sometime, and I say okay, and then they meet you and they tell you about their interest, and you get all excited and you sign them up. Uh, but they've told you that they talk to me and that they've already talked to me. What happens is I get that commission and you get in trouble because you took my guy. But the other, <laughs> but the other thing that happens is if they talk to you and what you're supposed to do is tell them, uh, we'll go talk to, go talk to Daniel. Right. So in the artist situation, very often, you know, galleries do a lot of work, but there could be more. There could be more done because galleries have other artists. So my question is, is sales and marketing knowledge an asset to an artist that has gallery representation? Absolutely. And should all artists actually choose to work with galleries or should some of them perhaps explore other sales and marketing channels, either with a gallery, separately from a gallery, or instead of a gallery? I think that if they're with a gallery and have been popular or successful with that gallery, they work with that gallery. They co-op on the advertising. We had more fun when we had, there were billboards. I mean, I, I was definitely different than every gallery in town. But I would co-op with an artist and say, okay, this billboard costs $500. We'll pay $250. You pay $250. And we're going to get your painting up on that billboard. That 500 people are going to, or 1,000 people are going to go by every day. It was so much fun when the days of billboards really was $500. But co-oping with a gallery like that and advertising in magazines. You know, everybody doesn't have the full amount for a magazine. But if you co-op with the gallery who's representing you, then everybody can afford it a little bit more. So co-oping, you know, as far as learning it on your own, Fine, just don't screw the gallery. Include them. You know, I, I do believe marketing is the key, though, Daniel. You can take, I'm telling you, you can take a shrub, like the Pet Rock or whatever, and do an incredible job marketing, and you can make sales. So, and without marketing, 
You are nothing. So you have to go out and market. Uh, you know, I have, I've, I've many times said this. If I had multi-million dollars, I would be, I mean, I'd be marketing everywhere with artists. I could make them famous. You know, I really could. Do you know there's a perfect example of marketing genius? George O'Keefe. It was marketing. It was marketing. Beautiful marketing by a, a slush, whatever. Her husband, who was brilliant and had a lot of money, and he marketed her just brilliantly in New, in New York because she was from New Mexico. And, oh, my God, um, I think of all the uh, – R.C. Gorman, some of the regular names of people who have been marketing – who have mar been marketed, even though their work, you know, was – eh. You know, even I, – I know. It's so funny. I always say, well, this shows how good of a gallery person I am. You know, um, had George O'Keefe walked in my gallery, I wouldn't have taken her. <laughs> I didn't think her work was good enough. <laughs> so that just shows you. Well, you know, it's funny you, you should say that. Uh, there's a, a current exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum called uh, George O'Keefe Living Modern. Oh. And the New York Times has an article about it in its art and design section on March 2nd that uh, the title is Georgia O'Keeffe, stylist and curator of her own myth. Now, um, you know, but the point I think you're I'm making out of that. Uh, yeah, it's well, that's how we that's how New Yorkers talk, man. We're blunt. But, you know, it's not meant to be a dig. It's just like, yeah, this is, you know, we're proud of you in a way. <laughs> but well, what right. you're sort of saying is that um, it is not true that if you build it, they will come, kind yeah. of the Field of Dreams uh, mythology. Uh, if you build it and you market it successfully, Thank you. Uh, then they will they will come. So let me ask you a question because, you know, we sort of divide, you know, our current accelerator program, our postgraduate program at the, at the Clark Hewlings Fund, we divide it into a few domains of knowledge. And we have obviously specialized things like legal for artists and, and uh, budgeting and pricing for artists and so on and project planning for artists. But the, the major areas break down to sales for artists, marketing for artists, and business training for artists, overall business level education that helps you get the kind of skills an MBA would get so you can run your business. Absolutely. So my question to you is, is, is business, I have two questions, is business knowledge in a working artist an asset or a hindrance when it comes to working with a gallery specifically? And then how can a working artist find the ideal markets in which to cultivate their collectors? Well, number one, I think it is an asset, although when I went in to the gallery, like I said, I had no business plan. I highly doubt I would have been able to do what it take now. You know, I learned, I got a PhD in business and art through the hard way, sweat, tears. Um, I do think it is an advantage to artists. So they recognize that it is not just art. It's not just art, and you can't just go out there and think, okay, er, you know what I said, everybody's going to love me, you know, and I'm going to sell. So, you, first of all, one of the first things I say to artists, which is so funny that I'd have to say this, do you have a business 
license, a business license. And they go, uh? And I go, a tax certificate. So at least you can get your materials and not pay tax. No. Well, that's number one what you do, is you set up a legitimate business with a tax license and a business license, and then you take advantage of what you can, I mean, financially, my God, you can deduct, you can, you know, I mean, there are, you just, yes, business, I'm sorry, I don't mean to go on about it, but then they're so naive, you know, about the simple things of making, how to how to make their work uh, less expensive for them to purchase, you know, wholesale, no tax, all that. So that's the business expertise they need. Okay, what was your second one? Well, now you've got me curious on, uh, I got another question about that one, but <laughs> I, I think it was how do, how do successful working artists find their ideal markets and, and cultivate their collectors? Well, I think they, they find their markets by hit and miss. You know, they go into New York City. You know, I'm going to tell you something about New York City that was fascinating to me. I have been to New York City several times, but one of my, when after the gallery had been going for some time, I went to New York City for a work, you know, just to, it doesn't matter why, but I just thought, I'm going to go look at the galleries. I'm going to take a real good look at the galleries. Now, this is not to put down New York City, although I have to admit, in some ways I had. I walked around and went, I don't even think they know what good art is, number one. Number two, and I'm not going, I'm not talking about museums and places like that. I'm talking about regular galleries. And um, their prices, of course, were horrendous. They had very few originals. You know, it was all the numbered prints, and which I call bullshit. But anyway, um, you know, I came back to New Mexico going, New Mexico art is better than New York City art. Now, that's just one square mile in New York City that I was able to, you know, that's generalizing. But I recognized that if you want to do deal in originals and not the prints, you need to get maybe in the, like Colorado, Montana, where they have a great degree of love for original art and where people really are sophisticated enough to buy original art and, you know, and don't want to spend thousands of thousands of dollars, you know, which I found, well, I had a conversation with a gentleman at a party and I had started, I'd probably been with the gallery for 20 years and he was sitting next to me. He was a very well financed, very, very, I would say big shot. Anyway, he was telling me how he only goes to New York City to buy all of his art, which, of course, was a slap on, you know, whatever. And I turned to him and I said, it's so interesting. All the New Yorkers are coming here to buy their art. He got up and walked away. And that's what I found with ArtFest. You wouldn't believe the people who were from far, far, I mean, not far away, but because New York's not that far away but who came from all over the country to go to a show like ArtFest, our show. You know, it was fascinating to me. So that's why if you're a younger artist, start looking at the arts and crafts fairs around the country. There are many, many of them. 
you know, and most of them you do have to apply. You know, you don't just get in automatically. So you have to be of a certain standard. But it gets you into that town. It gets you into that state. And you go, okay, are they looking for this kind of art? One of the artists that I now presently represent is a little bit more abstract, but metal and steel and absolutely beautiful. I love the work. And I encouraged him, and he went to a show in Chicago. And I thought, that's your market. You know, go to Chicago. You know, and I was very curious to see how he did. And he, he sold some work, and he got, I think, some commissions. I don't think it was the barn buster, but I don't think any art is a barn buster right now, particularly. Anyway, so you have to test those markets. You can't just sit in your little studio and think everybody's going to run to you. You've got to get out there. You know, so for artists, I think you have to test the markets. And yes, if you go to Texas, they're probably going to be more interested in the horses and the Western art. You know, in Oklahoma, maybe the same kind. You know, different in California, different in Florida. You know, it's certainly different in Illinois. New Mexico, but you know what my gallery is, Daniel, which is different? We're not Southwest at all. We have some Southwestern artists, but it's not a Southwestern gallery. Does that surprise you? No, it doesn't. I mean, you got to differentiate yourself uh, somehow. But I'd like to rewind a little bit and go back to, um, man, there's a couple of things I'd like to unpack. So, well, let me do this first. One, one is I'd like to say that, you know, this um, issue you sort of called out in business knowledge of differentiating between the business and the individual artist themselves, meaning the artist business and the artist right. as a, a human being, a separate person. That's really important for its legal and, and tax consequences. And a lot of artists aren't doing that. And you can tell um, just because when you talk about your income as an artist, very often uh, what's getting conflated is not only the gross revenue of the business and the net revenue after expenses, but also the right. individual income of the artist that's taken out of the business. There's sometimes clearly right. no distinction between the artist and the business. And that's a risky uh, place to be in and not necessarily the most profitable one, profitable one for tax purposes at times. So um, that's something that uh, we certainly intend to support and convey at the Clark Healings Fund, that, that need to legally and sometimes for tax purposes distinguish between uh, the artist and the, ar and the artist's entity or business status. But to go, totally agree. to go further than that, that's more something I just wanted to pull out of what you said, because I, I saw you going down that path and you cut yourself off. And I'm like, no, no, go keep going, Marianne, go down that path. I know, but yeah, <laughs> Daniel, I'm going to leave it to you. Well, yeah. I think what the, the Healing Foundation is incredible what you're doing for artists. OK, go ahead. Well, just one of, one of the you're singing the songs that we like to sing. So I wanted to I wanted to reprise the chorus, you know, but. Uh, another thing you were talking about is you encourage artists to pursue festivals and, you know, so um, very often you find some galleries do not encourage artists to pursue uh, selling work at all independently of the gallery if it's not a specifically gallery curated, sponsored or promoted event or activity. My question is whether we're talking about festivals or not. If an artist sells work independently of the gallery, does that harm the gallery relationship, in your view? No. 
In fact, it does in the gallery's point of view, but I think they're being very short-sighted because all it does is increase the market for that artist. And in the long run, they will benefit from that artist selling to other people, developing more uh, larger customer base, which they will get. At And then if the artist is fair, and this is where artists have to pay attention, send them to your gallery for more work. You know, watch for, give them information. Maybe the gallery's getting ready to have a show for you. Give that information out at your booth. When when I started ArtFest in Albuquerque, most galleries hated me. And I do understand the competition. But a show lasts three days. That's it. A gallery is around 360 days a year. So for three days, let that artist get out there. Let them promote themselves if they are good at it. Let them promote the gallery. We always put gallery signs. There are other shows here that our artists do. And you know what it says in their booth? Weems Gallery represents my work. So we put our signs in there. So when the show is over, a lot of artists do not like people coming to their studios nor their homes because it is awkward. And for some artists, it may pay off but most artists, and a lot of people don't like it because it is awkward for the customer. It's fun at, you know, for a moment, and then they feel like they have to buy from the artist because the artist has opened their studio or home to them. You know, that is, so the gallery, both the artist and the gallery can benefit from doing a show if you advertise the gallery and you are not one who wants to have people waltzing through your house or studio all the time. You know, that'll give you the time to work. Let the gallery take the rest of it. But on in the meantime, get out there, get your work shown. See, unless a gallery has a show for you, rarely do you get to show that many pieces of work at one time like you do at a fair. And I know that I'm making the fair sound like they're comparable to galleries. Artfest was. We had gallery artists in our show. We were the only one in Albuquerque that had gallery artists. You know, I will say that a lot of arts and crafts fairs are bazaars. I mean, you have to be careful. But we had the top artists, some of the top artists in the Southwest in here. And well, all over, actually. You know, and who are, I see them advertised in Southwest art all the time. It's so interesting or other art magazines. You know, Sarah Blumenshine. She's, on, she's been on the cover of Pastel Journal five times. She was an art fest, you know, and represented at the gallery and now has another gallery. But, you know, it didn't hurt us. Yes, I watched her sell 10 paintings. And guess what? Through the year, we sold 50 more. So you have to give and take, give and take. And that's why the gallery and artists have to work together. You know, they can't be so threatened by other situations. The gallery can't be threatened by a fair, and the artist can't be threatened by sending them to the gallery. In the long run, when they get tired of doing the fairs, it will be the gallery that is around, hmm. not the fairs. I mean, see, that's what changes. The bigger you get, although, you know what, some of the biggest artists in Albuquerque did art fest. Right. But art fest was different. Now, we, we provide a very gallery-like environment for them. We 
provided walls. You know, it looked very beautiful. It wasn't like you crappy set up with, you know, wire stuff and everybody brought in their own. We did not allow everybody to bring in their own booth, which is what a lot of fairs do. Now, we had setups where they were in closed spaces. And so we got gallery artists. Anyway, so work with each other. You know, my God, they're not your enemy. They're your friend, both sides. You know, the artist is the gallery's reason for being in existence. The gallery is the artist's reason to keep their work out in the public eye 360 days a year. Where else are you going to find that? In your home? I don't think so. In your studio? I mean, how do you ever get work done then? So you have to, you've got to find gallery owners that you can work with. And they are out there. Fewer and far between, but they are out there. <laughs> I don't know how it is in New York City. I have no idea. Other than I was more impressed with our art than theirs. <laughs> but I'm a snob. I'm an art snob. Believe it or not, with all this stuff I'm talking about, I am. I I like originals. I like artists who are good. I like artists who I don't. They don't have to be trained. You know, at, well, look, I'm a fan of Clark Hewling. Doesn't that say something right there? Says a lot of different things, but yeah, absolutely. Well, Marianne, I'm going to ask you one more question about um, this issue of galleries collaborating with artists. There's a lot more that I wish um, I had time to ask you uh, and uh, about the relationship of collectors to the gallery, collectors to the artists uh, as it relates to the gallery. Um, and I wonder if maybe we could steal you away for a follow-up interview sometime in the future. Um, we would probably have our editorial director interview you for a column. Uh, but we would I would love to, frankly, get understanding of some of the things I didn't get to ask you today. And I'm that's sorry, possible? Daniel. You know, I'm a talker. Not at all. No. <laughs> uh, don't be sorry. I, I milked you for everything I could get in the time that we have. I know. And I would, you know, collectors, my God, that's where you, I mean, when you get collectors going, you know what a small, tiny thing artists need to do? When they sell a painting to a, to a collector or to a potential collector, write them a thank you note. Do, I know that sounds so stupid. Do not send an email Write them, sit down, and write them a thank you note. My artists, many, and we encourage it with all of them, the artists who do that actually develop incredible collectors. And when people walk in and tell me that they have received a note from this artist or that, they are so amazed, and then they come in to see more work. Artists have to remember, these people are spending good money you know, and money is not in, you know, it's not out there as much as it used to be. I'm not talking about selling a million dollars. You know, that's a whole different ballgame. I'm talking about the normal artist out there trying to be courteous, be grateful, acknowledge the money they spent. Whether it's $150 or 10000 those people have just put you know, uh, something that is precious to them and p- allowed you to come into their home. So I, I just think it's very important, all these small, little, tiny touches that artists can do to make themselves a career 
or create a niche of a career in a time when art selling is very difficult. Oh, I think that's right. They I have think, to uh, know that. I think that galleries that restrict communications between the artist and the collector are making a huge mistake. Oh, uh, I totally Just agree. to sort of control the branding, I think you're missing out on the kind of loyalty that brings people back to the, the artists that you represent. So I'm glad to hear you sort of call that out. In fact, All right, let Daniel, me ask my, uh, go ahead. Oh, in fact, Daniel, it's one of the very first, the artists are always shocked when we give them the name of the collector, yet the newer artists in the gallery, we go, of course we do. I want you to develop a relationship with them. They know where they came to get the piece of art and they know, you know, so give it to them. Let the artist encourage that relationship. The artists who are smart about their galleries will not sell behind their backs, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Those artists, the ones last. They last. The other artists don't. I think that's what you were talking about, too, at the top of the show. You know, you were sort of, you started the gallery with a different point of view from traditional gallery. You started the festival with a different point of view from traditional festival. And I asked you early on in the show how you saw galleries evolving given the growth of other types of selling and, and, and a variety of things impacting the market. Uh, and, of course, we've spent whole shows on that uh, in this podcast. But, you know, you talked about, uh, you, you sort of uh, skirted along it, uh, but touched on or hinted at that modern galleries are going to have to think a little bit differently and do things a little bit differently. And that could, in, in many cases, involve adjusting the contract, adjusting the compensation uh, arrangement, uh, but it also, yeah. uh, these days, more than any other force at work in art sales, direct contact with between artist and seller is the most potent force. All the pressure is on taking out the middleman. So for a gallery to continue to be relevant uh, in the way that it hopes, it's going to have to, given the rise of, of direct sales, it's going to have to uh, trust a little bit more and facilitate better that direct contact to be successful. And I, I think it will only uh, enhance our sales. So I love that you brought this out. Uh, by no means is this off topic. In fact, you know, I intentionally just kept exploring. But Daniel, it's very important. <laughs> can I say one thing about that? One last thing? You thing? can say two things. Okay. <laughs> well, one of the things I say to people when they purchase in the gallery, whether it is a piece of pottery or a painting, you are not buying this product. You are buying this person. And it is amazing once they get to know the person. You know, they love it. And then it, in, but, and it's true. You are buying someone's sweat, someone's talent, someone's life. And even though from the very beginning we started talking about it being a product, you know, because I said you have to work at it like that. But when I go to sell it, you know, my whole idea, and I believe it totally, is you are buying that person who just painted that. Do you know how fun that is? I mean, it's so fun for the artist to know that their life, their their paint is in someone's home. And that person knows that that artist at that moment was painting that piece or creating that piece. My God, is that fantastic. And very rarely is anything else that unique in life. And that's why I think art is imperative to our history and to our world. Oh, one last thing. 
that I want young people. I was thinking about this. I saw the movie where the soldiers, the American soldiers went in to save all the art that the Nazis were going to destroy during World War II. They, the U.S. soldiers and others, gave their lives to save that art. That's how important art is. That is what people are about. Art and music, but it was the art. Can you imagine that? They gave their lives to save those pieces of art? That's incredible. And young people need to understand how important that is. Okay, that's the end of my sermon. <laughs> Daniel, well, I apologize. We re- no, no, don't apologize. This is good. It's better than what I was going to ask. And uh, so I'm, I'm really glad that we got there. So um, with that, uh, we're out of time. I'm going to go ahead and close the show. Marianne, we can't tell you how uh, pivotal this has been. I have plans for this podcast. Plans for it. I plan uh, well, to. Well, Daniel, you are a pleasure. <laughs> I can tell you that. You know, you oh, are so you. easy and so fun to talk to. And I hope artists have learned something and buyers and collectors and people who support the art. Please support it. You know, it's a vestige of human character, the art. They are absolutely imperative to our civilization. So please support. You've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. For more information on Weems Gallery and Framing, visit weemsgallery.com. That's W-E-E-M-S gallery.com. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org. To sponsor an artist with your small but impactful gift, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org slash impact. And be sure and follow our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Marianne. It's been really great having you. It's been totally my pleasure.